0: So, beloved, I'd like this message to be cloaked, I guess, or wrapped up in an idea that's not necessarily right in front in the passage, but I think is part of it, which is kingdom building. Building, how one builds a kingdom, how people build kingdoms, how people seek power to consolidate and use that power to usually get more or have a larger domain. Many men strive for power. Many men strive for power. Some don't, right? Some of us are, are uh, just, just fine without having much dominion or power. But other men get, a, get a, a desire for power. And by men, I mean women as well, but particularly men. Um, and they seek to add to their domains and their dominion and to grow their power, to grow their influence, to be able to do what they want to do. And they take, they take it and they run with it after the flesh. They build their kingdom. They build their power. They build their base. Um, in terms of human power, the the arm of flesh, and we can trace that all the way from Cain. We want to talk about Cain and Abel at the beginning, uh, and the exercise of dominion and power over his brother, to Machiavelli, to Maga and uh, Black Lives Matter, something immediately you know present in our own time. People build their kingdoms after the flesh. They want power, and they go after. Power. Well, Jesus wants power, as it were. He doesn't want it at all. He has the power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he's going to build his kingdom. Now, Christian, does he build it like Cain? Or like Machiavelli? Or like Magahat folks? or, um, Or whoever else? After the arm of flesh, trying to build a kingdom here on this earth. Well, we're powered by the Holy Spirit. We have different marching orders as to what we're to do, to not just build the kingdom, though I think there's a building reality, but simply to receive it. Right? It's the kingdom is something we receive as God's people, uh, and in receiving it, I think we build it. But first, we receive it. We have different marching orders, and often Christians listen to this: things that seem like liabilities, things that things that seem like weaknesses and, and problems. In the the Christian life, from a worldly standpoint, as far as power and politics and how things are done, God knows how to turn those liabilities or supposed weaknesses into strengths and victories. God knows how to do that. In other words, he's not calling us to mastermind the victory of the kingdom of God. God's done that. Christ is the one building his kingdom and giving it to us. He's called us to be faithful in receiving it. Faithful with the marching orders that we have from the scriptures. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. He says to his disciples in in Luke chapter 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. As the ungodly try to build their power and do their thing, their hearts, their treasure, or where their hearts is here on this earth with what they can get and what they can have and what they can pull together. But Christian, that's not how we are. We do live here on earth. And we do have to keep things together. and We do have possessions and things like this. But are, is that where your value is? Is that where your heart is? Is in this world, in the politics of this world, in the power plays of this world, in the wealth of this world, in the things of this world, Christian, how about any the experiences, the fun of this world? All these things are there for us to be, had, to be used and enjoyed as Christians, but as Christians. Not investing in them, thinking that that indeed was where our treasure is, and that is where the victory is. So as we approach here, Romans chapter 13, I, I approach it with some personal trepidation. Uh, I remember R.C. Sproul talking about not ever really wanting to teach publicly on eschatology just avoiding the subject uh, in order not to have to articulate things that he wasn't sure about. That's that simple, right? That he wasn't, hadn't come down on saying, well, this is what the Word of God says. This passage in Romans 13 hinges on some very important Christian doctrines, including things like self-defense, including things like the use of violence, The use of violence not only on an individual level, but moving your way out even to international, you know, the just war uh, theory is really rooted here in this text. There's a lot in here for us to think about, and it's hard to approach. So my approach last week and this week has been kind of broad to begin with, and then pulling into the text toward the end of the sermon, which I'll do just the same, I hope, this morning. So the first is I want to show the connection between Romans 13 here, this section on submission to the higher powers, and how it ties into the flow of Romans 12 and 13, which is pretty simple to show, but also to show how it flows into, fits into the flow of the Bible. That this isn't anything out of the ordinary, in fact, it's something we should totally expect. Romans 13, though it comes and slaps us in the face often enough. Secondly, I'd like to look at the connection of this passage and our obedience to it to what I'll call the development of liberalism, which is a liberal political order and a social order that's developed in the West over the course of the last thousand years. And where we're at in this it will be a short little hook at that, but I hope it will be inviting and interesting to you to think about where we're at in this in this reality of the human situation and what our responsibilities are to the civil government uh, the civil magistrate as Christians. And finally, uh, the connection we have here to uh, rebellion and judgment, which is one of the key themes here of the of the passage. So first, the connection to Romans. So back in in verses fourteen and following in Romans 12, one of the things that's, that's there, that's very important for us to see, is, as Christians, we are meekly to give place to wrath. Right? We're not to go exact vengeance from someone who's wronged us, whether they kicked us in the shin, or they splashed us with a mud puddle when they drove by, or they purposefully defrauded us, or other, a whole range of things that could be from sin all the way to just bad stuff. But God says, it's not your job to make it even. It's not your job to make it right. There are a few reasons for that, one we discussed a little before. One is we wouldn't make it right. We tend to think much more of ourselves, and the offense that we suffer is far greater than the offense other people suffer, and, and all these things. And we, we tend to want to take two eyes when one, is, when one is taken, and all these sorts of things. But God doesn't. God doesn't have any problem with perfect justice. In eternity, as we look as the new heavens and new earth, as we look at hell and we look at the judgment of God, we will know that it is perfect justice that's being meted out in hell. No questions about it. So we, God, God knows how to mete out justice. He tells us not to. He says vengeance is his and therefore gives us the place to trust him. Not to exact our own vengeance. Vengeance is God. We are to trust him and let go. Now you might say, well, that's weak, Pastor. You just going to let someone stomp on your toes and do nothing about it? That's right. That's right. Now I can't tell you in my own heart and how many other times I've seen other people where there's some offense is given and there's no way in the flesh that that can be avoided. That has to be addressed. I can't believe they dishonored us this way or they said this about us and all that is Christian is just your pride, just your pride. Who you think you are? And what kind of treatment you think you deserve, and it's all wise. We get different marching orders here in the scriptures. And it doesn't mean be a doormat and whatever else. I I, I hope I don't need to go through all details and say what we're not saying. But what we are saying is that God says, I got vengeance. You don't. You have to be patient. You have to wait on me to make it right. And if we have just that notion in mind, as soon as we get into Romans 13, it's like, okay, well, God's, one of God's ministers is the civil magistrate in these different capacities. And we have to wait on God for his ministry even through that as well. So we're waiting on God. We're meekly waiting on God, trusting him, and letting go. It's this theme that we have running through the end of the, the chapter, chapter 12, before we even get to chapter 13. To spread out a little, our nets just a little broader here from... Matthew chapter 9, you probably recognize this. Blessed are the peacemakers. Listen to who's blessed here. Listen to what kind of things Jesus is talking about uh, as he talks about these blessings, these beatitudes here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? That's, that's in the same vein of idea here. We, we're not only supposed to give place for wrath, we're supposed to rejoice specifically when we're persecuted for being Christians. We, we maybe think that in the public realm out here that People should throw confetti for us. We're Christians, right? We walk in and say, hey, we're Christians. And they should say, yeah, it's great. We love Christians. But when does that ever happen? It only happens really when a society is so worked through by the gospel and the church that Christianity is understood to be a good thing, but often it's not. Often it's not. Historically, often it's not. No, the church is a bad thing. These guys are imposters or, or even enemies of humanity and whatever else. There's nothing new about any of that. So our job here, Christian, is if we're going to suffer persecution... Listen carefully. We don't suffer it because we're scofflaws. We don't suffer it because we're rebels to the powers that are. We suffer it because we serve Christ in the context in which he's put us, and the context in which he's put us is a godless context. We suffer for him. And if we suffer for him, we should rejoice. Because they've done the same thing to the prophets in the past. And not only should we rejoice because we're lumped in with Christ and his, his service, But he says, I'll give you a reward in heaven. I got it. I got this thing, and I'll justly reward you for whatever you give up for me and for my kingdom. Listen also to Romans chapter 8. Again, a passage we're well familiar with. And again, listen to the, the tribulation and the suffering and the persecution involved. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'll finish passage in a moment, but do you see what he's doing there? He's counting this life as something to be given up. What if we're persecuted? What if we're persecuted unto death, to blood? Praise the Lord. He'll redeem all of this. He'll, he'll bring it in and give recompense not only to the righteous, but also to the unrighteous who wield the sword of persecution. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Christian, we are more than conquerors, even in the persecution unto death through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's how we're conquerors. And if we see that, if we're clear on that, then the other things we can give up. We can suffer the insults. We can suffer the persecution. We can suffer being defrauded or wronged. Because we know Christ will make it right. Vengeance is God's. He'll repay. Therefore, we can submit. We can submit to even to the persecutions that come in or even to the civil government. We can be those who are submissive. And we mentioned with the submission to the civil government, again, as was a biblical theme. Have you picked up any submission in the Bible anywhere besides besides this one? Well, the biggie, of course, is wives to their husbands. That's a big, obvious one. Wives are to submit to their husbands. And, of course, we got feminists you know, cheering and throwing flags around. This is terrible. Yeah, whatever. That's fine, but it's what the Bible says very clearly. The wives are to submit to their own husbands. Our children are supposed to submit to their parents. Absolutely, there's a there's a a posture of submission from children to parents. Our slaves are supposed to submit to their masters. Yeah, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. What if they're bad masters? Well, if the husband's tough, well, if her parents are tough, that's fine. That's part of the deal. That's part of the reality of submission. Christian, we're supposed to submit one to another. We're supposed to be living in subjection to one another. So the general posture of a Christian is one of submission. So we shouldn't be at all surprised when we come to Paul directing our attention to the Christian responsibilities under the, under the state, the civil government, that it's going to be one of submission. That shouldn't come as a shock because the whole Christian life is one of submission. And, on the other hand, the whole Christian life isn't simply doing what you're told, period, that's it. It's all submission under God. Honoring God, serving Christ, by submitting to the authorities that are in your life, in a faithful Christian way. Which means, we certainly, at the very and this is the easiest part, right? This is, you got paint by color, here are two colors, right? Uh, when, when, the, when the civil magistrate, or your parents, or your boss at work, or whoever the authority is in your life, and there are plenty of authorities, tells you not to do something that God says to do, or if they tell you to do something God says not to do, not only is it a possibility for you to disobey them, it is the God, the honest, righteous thing to do to disobey them, to obey God and not men. Most of the time, that's not what's on the table, but sometimes it is. And sometimes it is in weird ways that we don't see as well. So, all this to say, we have this passage here in Romans 13 that kind of seems like it pops out of the blue. Submission to the government, okay, well, where's that out of Well, it's out of learning how to be long-suffering and trusting God to begin with, and resting in the ways that he has things to be done, which includes the civil government. And the arm of the civil government that bears the sword, which, of course, is an instrument of death. More on that another time. But we just get, we just get done with chapter 12 saying, give place for wrath. And chapter 13 comes along and so, says, well, here's the place for it. The civil government, right? the civil magistrate who, who has this connection to uh, God's wrath and God's justice as he is one of God's ministers, indeed a minister of justice on earth. So that sets up as far as this connection of, of just the Christian posture of trusting God, resting in him, and, and being in submission all around to the authorities, but overall to God himself. So we have this call for us to be submissive to the powers that be. And I mentioned here that the powers that be change over time. That is to say that the way the powers are constructed or the structure of authority is different from place to place and from time to time. And I want us to recognize, American, that we are way out on the edge of a bubble when it comes to societal liberty and uh, and the, the curtailing of government powers and tyranny. We're, we're on the edge of this experiment that's been going on for a while, way out here in the West, in case you didn't know it, because you live here, and so do I. And so we think maybe this is normal. But when Paul writes, of course, that the Christians in Rome are to be submissive all the way to the, to the emperor, he's talking about Emperor Nero, and he's probably talking about Emperor Nero before he went crazy, or at least before he like showed himself crazy and a madman um, his, his, by the end of his reign which is, I think, 68, he, um, he's known as the Beast. He is the Beast. That's like a nickname of Nero, is the Beast. And maybe I'll help you out as you read some of the things in Revelation as well. But think of Rome and just very simple. This is going to be super simple, but I want you to kind of see the movement and see where we're at in it. Under the Caesars, after Augustus comes and, and the Caesars run Rome, they do what they want. Okay, The Caesar does what he wants, and very few could stay his hand at all, all the way from anyway, from personal slights and sexual things with the dalliances that everyone knew about but couldn't stop, uh, to stealing houses, to stealing households, to all sorts of things. The, the Caesars just kind of did what they wanted to do. They were not godly men. They were faithless men. They believed in the Roman gods at best. and They certainly believed in the Roman, uh, you know, religion, to try to make sure that Rome moved along, but by and large, and there's some power, a little bit of power in the Senate and other places and so on, but living under the Caesars was living under a despotism. They did what they wanted to, and you weren't going to say anything about it or do something different. Paul gives the instruction to be submissive within that context. Now, Paul himself, as we talked about last week, had some rights as a Roman citizen. He was able to look at uh, sometimes his persecutors or the tormentors and say is it right that you do this to the Roman citizen? And say oh well there's there's a political situation around this man that's important and mm-hmm. sometimes he brings that, plays that card, sometimes he doesn't play that card, but at least it gives us an understanding that that card can be played. If we're in a situation where we do have rights or we do have a legal situation then it's okay as a Christian to appeal to that. So he pulled to that in Rome, but very few people in the Roman Empire had that kind of uh, those kind of rights or those kind of blessings uh, as a Roman citizen, but Paul did. Now, if we move forward, and I know very little about this, but I'll mention as far as the movement in the West, we have something that goes on in 1215 called the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is a limitation of governmental powers and a distribution of governmental powers so as to avoid too much power in the hands of one. Because, as Lord Acton reminded us later than this, that power corrupts sinners. And absolute power corrupts absolutely sinners, uh, not God himself, right? So we want to separate out the powers and make sure one person doesn't have too much power because it tends to corrupt and spread around and have some checks and balances on power. Well, that's a tradition that moves on in the West. And as as the centuries move on, I just ask you to compare what goes on in England as far as the separation of powers and the government of powers and, and and how the people factor into that, especially the House of Commons, and how that goes in Europe. Under the monarchies, especially the growing absolute monarchies, which actually are patterned much closer to Caesar himself, right? It's just, except, except under the guise of God, that God's chosen this leader and all authorities in this leader, and it trickles out from that leader. In England, they got a different thing going on, right? They got a different organization of powers, and then of course, as the United States finally comes to pass, comes to be, we're way down the river on that. We're way down the river on that. Uh, and, and I want you to understand that, that we're in a place where the president doesn't rule, we don't have an absolute monarch. We don't have Henry the Sixth or uh, Henry the Sixteenth or something like that ruling over us. That's not it. We have a constitution that's been set up specifically in order to limit powers and make it so we can avoid problems that we've seen in the past. So, for a Christian in our day, in our time, in our country, it looks different for us to subject ourselves to the ruling authorities than it would under a monarchy, or than it would under the Caesars. Or that it would under some despot, some, you know, communist despot or something like that. Christians have to operate in all of these realms. Okay, Christianity is going to flourish in all of these realms. And we just have to figure out where we're at and how we can be faithful to what God has put us into and the authorities, the powers that are there in our own lives. And thinking of kind of recent situations with closing down of businesses, or making it so gatherings can't occur unless they're sanctioned and they're on the street or however all this went. Um, we have we have a situation where people in office, and rightly an office, in an office that's legally sanctioned and the Constitution gives power to this office and someone steps into the office and then they use the power to do far more or far different things than the Constitution has allowed them to do. Here's my question to you. Is it Is it being disobedient to Romans 13 if we oppose that person who's abusing their authority according to the office that they hold, according to the constitution under which they serve? Because that is the structure of authority in the United States. It's not the structure of authority in Rome. It's not the structure of authority in medieval Europe. But it is the structure of authority in the United States of America. So we have this situation where just because someone stands up and they're in office and they've got a suit on, unless they're from Pennsylvania, I guess you wear hoodies there all the time, uh, if you're a politician, that's what you do, but they stand up and they just start making decrees. They just say, this is what we're going to do. But they don't have the authority from the very Constitution that's given them that authority to do those things. If that's the case, it's not revolutionary to tear down, or at least to oppose, what is Non-constitutional. Let me read that again. Thus, if, if we're actually taking the other way, if we're to support that kind of tyranny, I think that would be rebellion against what Romans 13 is telling us to do. Just because someone steps up and says to do something doesn't mean that we have to do it, even if that person is rightly in office and rightly elected or whatever whatever the power structure and suffrage is to get into office and so on. So it, it's a delicate situation, and we have to recognize. What, what the laws really are in our own time, in our own place, and not just say, oh, well, Romans 13 says submit, so whatever they say we do, anyone in any authority says something, we've got to do it. That would be a bad misreading of Romans 13. I think, unfortunately, it's kind of the standard reading of when, when I run into people who say, well, just submit, do whatever it says to do. I say, well, the guy that wrote that opened his neck to be chopped, you know, his head to be chopped off if he's done anything that is worthy of death. This is Apostle Paul, we talked about this last week. He's also the one um, who went over the wall in Damascus and ran away from the governor of Damascus who was seeking his life. He's also the one who turns to, uh, uh, to, to those who have him in chains and then mentions, that, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman and you shouldn't be doing this. So there's a range here, is what I'm trying to say, of, of, of positions or postures of submission, uh, but all of it is quite complicated. There's, there's a lot here to kind of keep hold of, and with that, Christian, let's be humble and patient. It's hard for us, I think. We, some people can see a certain, a certain situation very clearly and say, oh, we have to oppose this. This is ungodly. This is against the actual powers that be. Other Christians can't see it. So we have to be, we have to be patient one with another and know that Christians have to subject themselves in all of these different situations. There's a whole range of situations Christians have to deal with and there's a whole range of Christians that are dealing with them. And so to be patient one with another, so, this connection to liberalism really is just to say, in our world, at the time we are, we're kind of way out on the side of this experiment in ordered liberty. That's what that's what liberalism is. Right? We talk about the liberal government. We're talking about, uh, I don't mean current politics and who's the liberal, progressive, or conservative. Not that. This idea of maximizing liberty, but having it done in a lawful way. Because we know the absolute maximization of liberty is chaos. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. Is that usually a good way of of having government? It's a bad way of having government. It's a terrible way of having government. When everyone simply does what's right in his own eyes, it's chaos. So, Christian, be thankful for the structure of power and the higher powers that God has set in place. We gain a tremendous amount, even if we look at it and say, oh, it could be so much better, or it's so corrupt over here. Of course it's corrupt. It's human power. Sinners will always seek more power. That's just built into the thing. But God has given us civil government and told us to be submissive to it because it's good for us. It's a gift of God to us and we should be thankful to God for it and be patient and humble as we, as we pursue being faithful under God knowing that all of this is in His hands. He'll mete it out justly in the end to be sure. It's our job to try to be faithful in the place He has put us. Now as the last word here, a connection between rebellion and judgment. We have this connection between Romans 12 and 13. Right? We see how this submission to the government fits into a general posture of Christian submission. And that that Christian submission looks different through the years in different places and under different regimes. But one thing that doesn't change is the connection to rebellion and judgment. Which is very clear from our passage. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, that's very clear. Clear state in the passage, and again, clearly, I think, all throughout the Bible. One thing that we see here, and this is the, the those who are rebellious, and say they want to cast off the yoke of, of civil government, or uh, simply just be disobedient, right, be in rebellion, is that they're in rebellion against what God has established. God has naturally established human authority and human rule. That's something he's built into nature. It's just part of the way things are. Now, rebelling against the way things are seems like it's pretty hot, pretty hot tomatoes nowadays, right? I mean, it's, uh, whether we say it's uh, I, God's made me male, I can tell. Um, I can go in the bathroom and figure that out. But I'm not going to be male. I'm something else. I'm rebelling against that nature. God's made us heterosexual. He's made men and women. He's brought them to come together. Uh, and procreative love to continue the human race and build the church say no, no, I think I'm going to love somebody of my own sex. I think I'm going to love I'm going to use my sexuality and just kind of push it wherever I want it to go. This is all just rebellion against nature the way God's made things and it's not as if we look around and we're, we're clueless I'm listening to an interview uh, with Matt Walsh just the other day and and he mentioned uh, to the interviewer that yeah well I'm, I espouse this, this notion of marriage that has been held by the vast bulk of people and vast bulk of societies all through human history until the last 15 minutes. And so just now, society generally has understood that male and female are the way that we're created and that we come together in conjugal, loving, public commitments. We call it marriage and things like this. Well, there's great rebellion against all of that right now. This kind of rebellion is just the same thing. Those who would say, I I don't want any human government, I don't need that. Well, you're rebelling just like someone who says, I'm not a man, I'm going to make myself a woman. You can see a rebellion there because you're like, no, you're a man, and you're not a woman. But we don't see the rebellion when it comes to kind of our own selfish moving ahead and doing our own things and and, uh, being scofflaws or neglecting the the higher powers that are over us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And to do this, just a couple pages over there, I want us to think about the revolutionary nature of Christianity, or in this case, the non-revolutionary nature of Christianity. So you might think that the Apostle Paul goes around city to city, church to church, preaching this gospel and says, now we're free from all of these earthly encumbrances. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. They're all one in Christ Jesus. So all bets are off, Christians. Go whichever bathroom you want. You're you're Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. But he says, that's not how it works. In Christ, we're one. But does that mean now we rebel against all the order and structure that God's built into the world? Absolutely not. Just the opposite. Look at verse 17 and following. 1 Corinthians 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. This is like now that you've been converted to Christ, you're going to lead the life that's been assigned to you, and to watch and to to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I tell every church this. Right, when I preach the gospel and freedom we have in Christ. I turn around and tell them this too. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. This is a comment there, right? Were you a Jew when you became a Christian? Don't try to not be a Jew. That's who God made you. Or were you a Gentile when God called you to be a Christian? Then don't try to be a Jew. Be a Gentile. That's what God's made you. And on he goes here. Let him not seek circumcision. Verse 19. Let neither circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Let each one remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? That is to say, were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. A little side note here. But, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. I'll make a comment on that little parenthetical note in a minute, because I think it's an important thing for us to understand, especially as we're thinking about where we're at in history and how we, how we respond to the powers that are above us. Because they're not the same powers that there were a thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago. They've, they've changed and morphed. Verse twenty-two, for he who uh, for he was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he was when um, likewise he who was free when he was called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men, so brothers, in whatever condition uh, each was called, let him remain. Let him, let sorry there, let him remain with God. Not doing a very good job reading. The idea here, though, is. God calls you in this life in a particular context, and just because you're in Christ and you have new life and all things are new, you've been bought with price. Doesn't mean all bets are off. You're still who you are. You're still part of the life that God's made you, and you're to be faithful in those particular contexts, right? So we we want, and I think there are there are plenty of there's plenty of preaching out there that Christianity is this great revolutionary thing, and it should you know we should bring social justice and justice all the world through Christ, and that's kind of not how it works. I think that Christianity does offer justice in time, but not because men get after it and have themselves a you know, a social justice you know, the, the thing, that, the soapbox that they stand on at work. It comes through submission to Christ. It comes through actually doing what God called you to do, which is to carry on your life, work with your hands, be faithful, uh, be generous, do, do all these things and submit to the authorities around you. And in that doing, God will bring forth that justice that we seek. In faithfully serving God, he'll add his blessing and give the blessings that we might seek another way, but that they be unfaithful. God calls us to faithfulness in our lives, which includes submitting to the powers that are around us, all sorts of powers. And in doing that, he'll change them. Christianity ended slavery in the Western world. Not by sabber-rattling you know, sabbat- and, and marches on downtown and, and uh, you know, the, the capitals. That wasn't it. it was just by Christian love through time. Just by Christian love, working out through time. Go read the book of Philemon for the, uh, the path on that. And again, it's not the revolution. It's not the fists and swords. It's just submission to God. Doing what he says and trusting him to make it right. But, as it says, if you can't avail yourself of liberty, do it. That's better. It's better to be a free man than to be a slave. But just because you're in Christ doesn't automatically mean on earth you're a free man if you were a slave when you were called. So we have to recognize who we are in Christ, the spiritual realities of being in Christ, and how they touch down into this world. And sometimes there's confusion there, for, for all of us, in different, in different ways. So Christianity is not revolutionary in this kind of modern sense that we think of, you know, again, marches and barricades across the street and whatever else that goes on in these sorts of revolutions. Rather, it's more like 11 in the lump sort of revolution. It takes time for that leaven to work through the lump, but it does. The kingdom of God's like that. I think I read that somewhere. It grows slowly. But when it's done growing, it's the biggest bush in the entire garden. And all the birds come and hang out in its branches. But it takes God's time. Again, it's all, stepping back to that first point, it's all patience. It's all waiting on God. Being faithful in the capacities he's given us. Being in submission where he's put us. Recognizing what that submission looks like. Seeking freedom rather than bondage yet waiting on God in all of it. Just like he says, vengeance is his, he'll repay. Now, the problem here, though, is while we should be good subjects, Christians should be good subjects, and subjects is one word, uh, those who are subjected, or citizens, we don't think of ourselves as subjects, do we? You ever think of yourself as the subject of the governor of Oregon, or the subject of the United States of America, or the president? Never, we think of ourselves as citizens. Voting, citadel, that sort of thing. Good. Good for us. Um, but, either way, we should be faithful citizens, faithful subjects, where God has put us. Hardworking, faithful, honest, joyful, seeking to be obedient. That should be the Christian work ethic and posture as it comes to all of this. But the truth is, too often we're rebels. Too often we want it our way. We want it our way now. We want it our way by our, uh, by our means and the strength of our arm, rather than trusting in God. And God promises this and listen, wrath to rebels. Those who would take the order that God has created and put them in and rebel against it whether it's to the state and rebellion or to their, their gender their sex or to their sexuality or any number of other ways which we rebel against and I'll give you another one um, deforming yourself. We look around and I don't know how many people I run into out there just shopping around like, Ooh, uh, you shouldn't have done that to yourself. Uh, and and even when you try to come back from it, you take the horns out and the things out of your ears, you've, you've, you defiled yourself. You've made yourself something ugly and different. Rather than adorning yourself and making yourself beautiful with makeup or with, uh, you know, jewelry and so on, you've made yourself ugly. You've rebelled against what God has made. You've hated the thing that God has made you to be, and you're rebelling against it. Watch out for that rebellion. It's all of the same cloth. It's all of the same paint color. It's rebelling against what God has instituted in nature, but also in redemption. Right. So the the rebelling against nature in whatever forms it takes really finally comes to its fruition or its culmination in rebelling against the one that God has sent. And isn't Israel as a nation just the prime example of that? Here is the son. Here is the son of the owner of the vineyard. Let's kill him, and this vineyard will be ours, you see. It's all the same. That rebellion is all the same. It's against God, it's against His creation, it's against the nature He's made, and put us into, and it's even against the redemption of all of that, because we're a bunch of rebels. We're a bunch of rebels. We're a bunch of ungrateful rebels, and that's how we are. That's our heart as sinners. Now God has made us to be better than that in Christ, and we're being redeemed, and and God grant to us that we have the grace of submission, the grace of obedience, in all these different areas of life, but we're Rebels, rejecting the civil order, rejecting all sorts of things revealed by God, and finally rejecting the mediator. Men want power. Men seek power. And they build kingdoms with that power. They do it right in front of our eyes, or in front of the history books as we read them. We can see how people consolidate and and make make their moves, build their kingdoms. Of course, we watch kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But the kingdom we're receiving isn't like those kingdoms. It's not built the same way. It's built with people. It's built, of course, where there are similar parts to it. But, but Jesus said, My kingdom's not of this world. You don't need to worry about calling. I've got legions of angels I can call. If, if we needed some damage done here, I know how to get damage done. I can drop a bomb, Jesus says. I know how to do that. But my kingdom's not like that. It comes differently. It comes by humble Christian obedience, simply receiving what God gives in Christ Jesus, and by His mercies, being faithful in the place. That God has put us. And like all rebels, Christians, we need a Savior. We need one to save us from our own rebelliousness. Not just the world and and all the rebelliousness out there, of course. But what about ourselves? Our own rebel hearts. Our own selfishness and pride. Oh, Christian, every day we should be struggling against these things. Trying to obey. Seeking to be faithful to our God where he has put us in meekness. Looking to the cross who... We see the great victory there, right? Jesus didn't come with tanks and armies and nuclear power. He came and gave himself up to death. Does that seem like a move of strength? Seems like a move of utter weakness. To come and give himself up to enemies that he could have overpowered. But note the wisdom of God. It makes men's wisdom look like foolishness. Because it's through that very death, through that very giving of himself in meekness. Christians, not only are we saved and re- redeemed from our wickedness, but it's through that that he received the name that's above every name. And by God's power, rules as the King of heaven and earth, our Savior, our King. Can we trust Him? Can we trust Him to make our stuff right? So Christians live with their open hands, trusting the Lord, humble, patient with one another as we sort these things out, knowing that Christ rules. Christ is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen.